The construction industry in Indiana has depended on Quality Supply and Tool, a local family-owned business, to deliver quality sales and service over the last 25 years. The employees make the difference, like sales expert Nick Worley. What sets us apart is we only offer quality tools and supplies from quality manufacturers. We have a quality-trained sales and service staff knowledgeable of the products we sell and offer. Quality. It's in our name. On South Harding Street in Indy, plus Jeffersonville, Bloomington, and Lafayette, Quality Supply and Tool thinks outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hi there. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jay Query. Mike Thompson here as well. Eddie Garrison is flying the Millennium. Is it Millennial Falcon or Millennium Falcon? Eddie, are you a Star Wars guy? Not a Star Wars guy, but I know the answer. It's Millennium. Millennium Falcon. Yep. It's not the Millennial Falcon? I guess if it was the Millennial Falcon, it would be like someone your age, right? (laughs) Yeah. The Millennium Falcon. Uh, Mike Thompson here as well, as I had mentioned. And Mike, I um, I know that you have a great reverence and respect, appreciation, and enthusiasm for the traditions of May. Uh, we had a fun one earlier today, the American Dairy Association of Indiana Fastest Rookie Luncheon, which is the 49th annual, as a matter of fact, honoring this year's fastest rookie qualifier, Benjamin Peterson, as well as the other rookies that are up there, Augustin Canapino, Stingray Rob, and as well, R.C. Enerson. I'm going to give you, Mike, a trivia question, which I don't expect you to know the answer, because not because I didn't know the answer. That's not to say that you wouldn't know what I don't. But I don't know how out there this story was until I learned it today. Have you been, first, Mike, to the Fastest Rookie Luncheon before? I have been once to the Fastest Rookie Luncheon, yes. Uh, Can I ask one quick question? Was there a cow involved? Yes, sir. Okay, that's good, because I I do recall the year I was there, Joseph Newgarden was uh, having difficulty with a cow. Okay, so here is the thing. The cow that you speak of they have a cow there and they have had several rookies that have tried to milk the cow and very few have had success milking the cow i think they do it more for a photo op as opposed to actually drawing milk from the cow you know what i mean to your point about joseph newgarden yeah i don't think if i recall correctly i don't think joseph newgarden was successful in milking the cow correct One driver at the fastest rookie luncheon, and according to the American Dairy Association of Indiana, the first ever driver that was able to successfully milk a substantial amount of milk out of the cow, like the equivalent that a farmer would do, they were all sitting around. It was not, at that time, this would have been after Newgarden, but they were sitting around and it was like, okay, this driver said, I think I want to milk the cow. And they're like, okay, nobody's ever volunteered to do it, but go ahead. So he not only milked the cow, but did so very successfully. 
And Alexander Rossi went on to win the Indianapolis 500 in his rookie year. As a result, every driver with that cow sits there and does not leave until they milk it. That is the new good luck charm of the American Dairy Association of Indiana. But as we know, Mike, in order to win the Indianapolis 500-mile race, it takes more than just the driver. It takes the car. And then it takes those that are behind the scenes crunching the numbers, doing the math, doing the science, looking at the data. And we're talking about some of the mastermind engineers and mechanics that have won the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Yeah, some of them. uh, I I honestly think that times we don't say enough about the master mechanics and that's why i thought it might be a fun show tonight to talk about the master mechanics i was going to ask you about this over the weekend what you thought about this as a topic because you know we you know there's names from the past that just kind of gotten lost along the way i mean like aj watson um you know obviously watson is probably a bad example because you know the watson roadster was such a ubiquitous part of the race but you know some of these some of these people are you know they're they were really important figures at their time. Clint Brauner, who we'll hear from later tonight. I mean these are these were really really important figures. I mean there was a a mechanics you know pole winning mechanics luncheon every year, and uh, you know Donald's told me several times about how you know he went to that event and you know how much fun it was. So uh, it used to be a pretty big event, and so I I just think it was nice to nice idea tonight to to you know shine a light on some of the master mechanics. Totally agree because in the early years of the Indianapolis 500 mile race, the names that you hear about Ray Haroon, Jules Gu, those that drove in the Indianapolis 500 more often than not were also the mechanics or the engineers for the team in which they were driving, and they oftentimes that's how they got into Grand Prix driving. They were those that were the masterminds towards building sleek and fast race cars. And then you had, of course, the next generation, which would have been men who were growing up during that period and watching it. And maybe they themselves were not necessarily prone to become race car drivers, but life took them in a different path. And that was sitting with a pencil above their ear and a calculator and a slide rule and whatever it took and looking over what made cars go fast. And many of them became legendary figures at the Speedway. George Bignotti was a native of Northern California, San Francisco area, as a matter of fact. In fact, I can tell you, because completely by happenstance and serendipitously, I know an individual who bought one of his Bay Area homes. And it came equipped with a very large area that was a garage area where George McNaughty would sit in the lab over the course of the year before breaking out some of the greatest race cars that Indianapolis had ever seen. He came here for the first time in 1954. That after, of course, already establishing himself as a dominant chief mechanic, winning all kinds of races up through national championships. But by the time it was all said and done, he was not only a mechanic that was building race cars, he was also owning race cars and as well a part of not one, not two, not three, but seven Indianapolis 500 championships. Quite frankly, Mike, I think when you're talking about chief mechanics and engineering minds at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, you start with George Bignotti. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start. And you brought up a really good point that I, I was hoping we'd get a chance to bring up was that he, a lot of people will forget he was a co-owner as well. I mean, people know George Bignotti for his, you know, great success, tremendous success as a chief mechanic. But, you know, he co-owned uh, the A.J. Foyt's winning car in 61. It was, you know, uh, you know, Bignotti Bowes Racing. And, and he co-owned uh, Sneva's winning car in 83. So, 
you know, he was also involved as, you know, on the ownership side a little bit too. And I think that kind of gets lost in in the uh, discussions of George McNaughty. Overall, he was the mastermind behind 85 IndyCar victories, seven Indianapolis 500s amongst five different drivers. One of the true legends, George McNaughty, who lived until the age of 97, passing away in 19, or in, excuse me, 2013. But we need to hear from the man himself. Mike, take me through the soundbite we're about to hear from George Bignotti. So this is one of those uh, interviews that I recently picked up in, a, in an auction. Uh, it came from an auction out in Terre Haute, and uh, it's Daryl Weibel, who is obviously pretty well known out there. And this is uh, Daryl Weibel talking to George Bignotti. It was neat that Daryl Weibel, he talked to a, it was a little bit like what Freddie Aggravation did because Daryl Weibel talked to a bunch of different people that was a different kind of a cross section of people. He talked to people behind the scenes, mechanics, car owners, drivers. So, you know, Daryl Weibel, when he was doing these interviews, you know, he got, he got a lot of different people involved. And so it was pretty exciting when I, when I purchased this uh, reel and, and I found all these different interviews. So this uh, Daryl Weibel and George Bignani. From garage number 65 and garage number 66 combined here, here is George Bignani, part owner and chief mechanic of the Bulls Seal Fast Special. George, how many 500-mile races have you worked in? Well, I came back in 54 with Freddie Agabation on the Merge Engineering car, and I've been here ever since. How long have you been working on race cars now? Well, I've been working on those for quite a while. It used to be a hobby before the World War II, but after that it became a business. And we about what year did, it, uh, did you really begin with racing? Well, we really started racing in earnest about 1946 and 7, when the midget races were running pretty high, as high as seven nights a week. We were Was all of your activity confined to the, to the West Coast primarily? Yes, we were running uh, steadily out there. Freddie Agabation drove for me out there, and we won the championships four years in a row while he was driving for me. You won it four years in a row on the Pacific Coast? Yes, we did. And how about another championship that might have come along? Well, Johnny Boyd took over and drove uh, the car after Freddie left, and he won the championship in another car like Freddie's. Which means you had five championships in, in how many years there? Was it five years in a row, or no. five out of six, or seven, or how? Well, it was just about five in a row. And that's uh, an outstanding record, George Bignotti. What's a mechanic's biggest problem when it comes to preparing a race car? Well, in preparing a car, first you have to have it built to, to your specifications, and then you have to get it all set up, get the chassis working, the engine working. In other words, the whole car has to be uh, really set up right for the driver. How much can a driver really help you in preparing one of these cars? Well, After all, you're not out there riding 140 miles an hour. Doesn't that make quite a difference? Well, a good driver can come in and tell you uh, that the front end's pushing or the back end's coming around too much, and if you know your chassis, you can turn a few bolts and have it right for them in a few minutes. But if the driver doesn't know what the car is doing, it's a big problem involved. In other words, if you ask him why you're only going 135 and he scratches his head and said, well, and then you're in trouble. Then you don't know whether the engine <laughs> isn't putting out or the chassis that they are. Well, George, about the 500-mile race and your association with it since 54, can you bring us up to date on exactly what you've done here in the 500? Well, I work with uh, Frankie Delroy on the MERS engineering car, and uh, Freddie Agabation drove that in 54. We ended up sixth. And in 55, uh, Little Walt Faulkner was driving it, and we ended up fifth that year. And naturally, last year, I came back for the first year with a car of my own, which the Bose Seal Fast Company sponsored for us. And uh, 
we had a little oil problem in the tachometer drive, which put us out of the race early. We were running very good at the time. But George has still means that, in fact, I think you were running fifth or sixth at that time, or at well, least we up there. Were, we moved up from twelfth to seventh, and then uh, the yellow flag came out, and he came in, and uh, we discovered the leak was bothering his vision. It was fogging up. There was actually no oil dropping on the track or anything, but we lost just enough to fog up his goggles, and it wasn't safe for him to drive. Now, this means that in three years you're at the track, you have a fifth and a sixth, and then last year running up in the top ten when something goes wrong. And with Johnny Boyd and Freddie Agabation here, how do things look for 1957? Well, I'm real happy about 57. We got two good drivers, and the cars are in fairly good shape. We have a few problems to work out, like everyone else has out here, but uh, things are going along pretty fair right at this point. Did you work with other midget drivers we might be acquainted with on the West Coast, other than Freddie Agabation and Johnny Boyd? Oh, yes. Uh, Ed Elysian drove for me, and uh, Bob Swikert was one of the drivers that drove my car. Uh, back there, he started driving midgets in my car. and. Uh, Oh, it's a pretty classic company. Billy Vukovic drove my car at one time. Is that right? Yeah. Well, how does it compare now, as far as, now this is kind of a silly thing maybe, but how would it compare to prepare a big car for something like the 500 or for a, a big race like Milwaukee's 250 miler to the midgets that you've uh, spent so much time with on the West Coast? Well, the midgets are, uh, aren't quite uh, as complicated as the big cars. They're actually uh, a miniature model of the big cars. However, you don't have to put the care and attention into the car that you would a big car. The big car is running so much faster that the least little thing that you overlook could uh, mean the driver's life involved. So you have to be more careful and uh, a lot more pains taken in assembling one of the big cars. George, have you fellows here now, you and the rest of your crew, and your two drivers, Freddie Agabation and Johnny Boyd, have you set a goal for yourselves in these bowl seal fast specials for 1957 as far as qualifying is concerned? Well, we know that uh, qualifying speeds are still in doubt as to what the actual speed's going to be, but we know you have to be between 140 and 147 to be in the race good. If you want to be on the pole, it's going to take 146 or so to get up in the front row, and I think it's going to take around 140 to get in the race itself. Thanks very much, George Bignotti, part owner and chief mechanic of the Bowl Seal Fast Specials here in Gasoline Alley. George Bignotti, by the way, has a daughter, Mary Mendez, that is still very involved in racing. She runs tours called RPM Tours for hospitality and enthusiasts of the sport at virtually every racetrack, not just the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But, Mike, when it comes to those who were able to put their stamp on auto racing, George Bignotti, as we talked about, would be the top of the list. And the other thing, Mike, that I think is so impressive about him it wasn't as though he just simply had one blueprint and one driver combination and went with it. He had a versatile background in terms of the different styles of cars that he that he worked with and, furthermore, the drivers that he worked with. Well, I mean, he had a versatile background because he started out as a florist. So, I mean, he was a, he was a versatile guy. I mean, if you needed a floral arrangement done, George Bignotti was your guy. If you needed a great engine made. You know, George McNaughty was your guy. But, no, you're right. I mean, he, he had a number of different uh, drivers. I mean, he was really high on George Amick. Uh, unfortunately, George Amick passed away before they really could have a lot of success together. And I had an interesting conversation with, with A.J. Foyt one time about it because he and Foyt were together, won all kinds of races together, uh, drifted apart. 
And they realized that they were at one point, they realized they were better together than they were apart. And they said, hey, do you think we should try it again? They did try it again. And they won some more races together. And then they drifted apart again. They just couldn't get along. And I kind of jokingly said to AJ, I said, uh, you know, do you think if you'd have stayed with George McNaughty, you'd have won 100 IndyCar races instead of 67? He said, oh, yeah, probably. You know, if we could have stayed together, we'd have won more Indy 500s and more, uh, you know, championship races together. So, uh, you know, George McNaughty had an incredible career and a lot of incredible drivers. He got the racing bug, as I mentioned, when he came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1954. But even before that, being around the world of motorsports with his brothers and realizing that he simply had a knack for building fast cars and figuring out how to make them fast. But in addition to that, George McNaughty, perhaps his greatest skill, was figuring out how cars could make the distance, whether it was a 100-mile race or a 500-mile race. So only fitting that one of the drivers who probably from that tutelage carried that flag in terms of always understanding the equipment and making sure that it was there at the end was the guy that drove perhaps his most famous car, the 1970-71 winner Al Unser, who of course drove the Johnny Lightning Special. Here's Al Unser talking about George McNaughty. I was going to ask you about uh, George Bignati. How much of an influence did George Bignati have on your development as a driver? <laughs> George and I, uh, when Floyd came in in 65 and asked me to run his second car, George Bignati went bananas, I guess, because he didn't want another rookie in, you know, in uh, the other car. Even though Boyd owned the team, I guess, or whatever, I never did understand all of it. But George did not want me in the car. And then after the race, then, uh, you know, he he then seemed to get along with me. And, and uh, then when he came to work for, for uh, Al Redsloff and George hired me, uh, for John, well, first uh, George was with John Meekum, and and when Roger Ward retired, I was down at George's doorstep at eight o'clock the next morning after the banquet that Roger Ward retired that year. And boy, I was standing there, and you know, I told him I said I want to run your race car, and he hired me. And then later that week. I got fired, and uh, I never even got in the car. So George calls me up, and, and I go down there. He says, come down, I want to talk to you. And I went down to his shop, and he tells me, he says, well, Meekum, who owns the team, hired Larry Dixon. And he says, since I promised you a ride, he says, we'll go to Milwaukee, and I'll put you in Roger Ward's car. He says, it's a good car. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, and, and then, of course, right away I said, okay. You know, it was an Alfie with a, with a blower on it. And, and But anyway, we went there to Milwaukee, and there I was in, in uh, Roger Ward's car that he just retired from. And, and uh, then we got along good, and then Meekum then kind of sold the team to Al Redsloff. Well, I went with the, with with George McNaughty, which was to me George McNaughty was a miracle man. You know, he just he got things done. You know, for the team, and he always made sure that 
you know, to try to be competitive and to try to win the race. And, I mean, he just, he taught me a lot. George, you know, when we finally understood each other on what I felt like in the car, and, and George was a man that just made it happen. So it was just a fantastic career for me to, that each step that I took or got a chance to take, it gave me, you know, steps up and, and uh, better in racing. We started running, you know, first we started running third, fourth, and then we got up to second, and then we started winning. So George was a great help. He, he made the car reform for the driver. He didn't always do what a lot of mechanics, chief mechanics did, was here's a car, you drive it. George worked with the driver. He tried to figure out the driver's mind and how he felt and, and what he felt like in the car. And George made it happen. George McNaughty also, as we had mentioned earlier, got involved in co-owning race cars as well. He was inducted into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame in 1975. 18 years later, he was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. That award coming in 1993. If you were looking perhaps for booklets, magazines, whatever it might be, ticket stubs from races that George McNaughty won, amongst other areas of memorabilia this thursday is going to be your chance to get exactly that from four until eight on thursday from three until eight on friday and from nine until four on saturday it's the memorabilia show at the embassy suites uh event center this is in plainfield correct mike that is correct uh it is at plainfield it's at plainfield in the uh embassy suites center at play field that is correct tickets are just seven dollars you can actually for fifteen dollars get them for the entire weekend if you want to go for all three days so certainly i uh, think fans would love to do that you heard roger ward mentioned earlier speaking of roger ward one of the guys that turned wrenches that helped him win races is amongst those that we will continue to feature as we take a look back at some of the master mechanics of the indianapolis 500 and we're doing it here on beyond the bricks whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. One current piece of news that I think was released since Kevin and Kurt were on the air. Stephen Wilson, who was injured, of course, in the accident that has led to Graham Rahal, now running in the Indianapolis 500-mile race, and his back injury, there has been a release in the last 20 minutes or so of an update on the condition of Stephen Wilson from Dreyer and Reinbold in Cusick Racing. After sustaining a fracture of the 12th vertebrae in yesterday's practice for the Indianapolis 500, I am paraphrasing and reading this, by the way, Stefan Wilson stayed overnight following further observations and tests today. It was determined by medical staff at the hospital that Wilson will require surgery to stabilize the fractured area. The surgery will take place tomorrow, Wednesday, May 24th. We certainly... With Stephen Wilson, one of the true, true gentlemen of the sport 
the best of luck and a speedy recovery as well as the best of luck to Graham Rahal and being able to honor that ride by having a solid run in the 107th Indianapolis 500-mile race. Oftentimes, Mike, when you hear about people that began racing careers, whether it be driving, working on a car, or simply getting the racing bug, they will tell you that it goes back to perhaps the first time they saw an automobile on the family farm or in the garage, or maybe dad or an uncle was working on a car in the driveway. In the case, in the case I should say, of Clint Bronner, it would be essentially farm equipment. Growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, he was one of those that was working on the family farm when he suddenly realized that every once in a while some of the farm equipment might need to be tuned up or souped up or whatever it may be. And he thought to himself, you know what, I think I have a knack for this. And lo and behold, what happens? But eventually, like for so many, he gets a break in the early 50s. And before you know it, it's not too long after that, Mike, when he is a mechanic that is turning wrenches on the ultimate showcase of speed at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That's right. And this is a guy who, if you look at some of the people who drove for Clint Bronner, man, it is a who's who of racing. There's There were some amazing drivers i mean you just think of immediately of jimmy bryan and eddie Sachs and mario and you know uh, bob swiker drove for him and you know it just the list goes on and on about people who drove for for uh clint bronner and you know i always think of clint bronner i always think of him in those i don't know if you've ever seen pictures of clint bronner but he always had a you know bandana and a straw hat because um you know he he battled uh against skin cancer and he, he had a lot of different adversities. And so he was always, you know, wearing that uh, famous straw hat. You never saw him without it. So, um, you know, Clint Bronner was really an amazing guy. Oddly, I have always thought he had a smile, totally different sport, that reminded me of Troy Aikman. And I'm probably am the only person that thinks that. But Al Dean essentially gave him his first break when he hired him. And then as a team together, Al Dean being the car owner and Clint Bronner being a mechanic, they won the first four Hoosier 100s out at the Indiana State Fairgrounds, of course, with Bob Swigert, Jimmy Bryant, as you talked about. Bryant, as a matter of fact, won 19 races for Bronner before 1957. And by the time it was all said and done, Bronner was able to win 51 races from 1953 to 1969. Perhaps his crowning achievement, depending on who you ask, I guess, would be in the fact that whenever you have championship drivers and drivers that are racing all over the world, there was always something about winning pole at Indianapolis. And Clint Bronner was able to put together cars that did exactly that for Eddie Sachs. As a matter of fact, he talked about that in 1961. First of all, your chief mechanic, who has a lot of firsts to his credit, Clint Bronner. Uh, this is a great year for uh, outer space, you know. Werner von Braun made a record. Now Clint von Brauner puts the car in the pole position two times in a row. Well, uh, Sid, you can call me most anything if I keep on setting records like uh, what we've tried to do this year. Well, you had a lot of firsts this year. Shall we start the first day of the opening of the Speedway? Yes, Sid. Uh, we uh, tried to be first on the track when they opened the gates, but uh, the boys put the car out very early in the morning. The engine was cold, and we couldn't get it started. And uh, I think we got out just a little too late to be first. And uh, then our second first was uh, after a week went by. The, uh, we was the first. Uh, our one of our team cars was the first car to hit the wall. And uh, so uh, our 
our second first was when uh, Jack Brabham uh, failed to uh, be noticed on his qualifying uh, start, and uh, one of our other Dean cars, driven by Bill Cheeseburg, was first to qualify. And then you were first home. Uh, first home, yes. But you were 21st earlier in the day, weren't yes, you? Yes, uh, I was, I, when I found out that I was 21st pushing out in line, why, I thought of uh, number 21, and that's Blackjack, Sid. And that's very good. You decided not to draw any more cards. That's right. Well, Clint, you have a fantastic record as a mechanic, as the pole position mechanic here two years in a row at the Mechanics Banquet put on by the 500 Festival. A week from Tuesday, you'll receive over $5,000 in gifts. You'll get other special prizes for this uh, acknowledgement today. And also, you were the mechanic of the year when Jimmy Bryan was the driver for your entry again, Dean Van Lines, in 1954, 56, and 57. That's, fantastic record. That's right. You. I think... Uh, the other record, the other first is uh, the uh, first uh, mechanic to ever win this pole uh, banquet uh, two years in a row. Or the pole position at the Speedway in 50 years, That's, two years in a row. Well, we're after them first. That's what Boy, pays off. This is really a very stellar group here today. And what's interesting about Clint Bronner is, uh, and Jake, I think you'll get a kick out of this, your old friend, the, the late Robin Miller, told me a story. And I was looking for this soundbite today, and, and I ended up getting uh, sidetracked by a hospital visit instead. But uh, your, your old friend, the late, the late Robin Miller, told me a story that it's actually Clint Bronner's uh, wife who is responsible for the Andretti curse. And that what happened is at the end of 1969, uh, they had won, you know, when Mario had won the, uh, the 500, uh, Andy Granatelli took over running the team for 1970, and apparently the first thing he did for to, with the you know taking over the team ownership was to get rid of Clint Bronner. Uh, Mario didn't want that. Mario wanted him and Jim McGee and Clint Bronner to all stay together, but apparently there was some sort of disagreement or something that where Andy Granatelli didn't get along with Clint Bronner. So the story that Robin Miller told me was that. Uh, it, it was Mrs. Bronner went into the, the desert in Arizona and visited some sort of, uh, you know, person who makes spells or something and said, I don't want another Andretti to ever win the Indianapolis 500 and that she is somehow responsible for the Andretti curse. I wonder if she was watching the end of that 06 race. Right. Thinking to herself, we'll see what happens. See? Yeah, we'll see. You never know, see what right? I did yeah. there? Exactly. But no, you're, Robin, Robin, like, I mean, he swore to me that that was the case. He said, you know, he said, oh, you know, Kay Bronner, she put she put a curse on the family. And, you know, as she said, there'll never be another Andretti win the race. And I said, so that's the story Robin told me. Clint Bronner, by the way, you had mentioned the skin cancer. Unfortunately, it finally proved to be fatal for him. He passed away from it on December 23rd. 1987 but that was after fortunately because he was living to see it he was inducted into the indianapolis motor speedway hall of fame in 1984 30 years after that in 2014 we lost aj watson and he is another one mike that when you talk about those that are synonymous with building cars boy aj watson as versatile as any of them oh definitely and i mean there's always been this kind of misnomer that that at one point the entire field uh, the Indianapolis 500 was Watson Roadsters. I mean, that never was actually the case, but it just shows how it's almost like, you know, how uh, 
you know, tissues are, are Kleenex or whatever. I mean, it just becomes the brand name becomes what it is. And so Watson Roadsters were so ubiquitous that people believe the entire field was Watson Roadsters at one point. I mean, that's how uh, dominant those cars were. And that's how many there were in the race. Well, Roger Ward won in a Watson car 18 times. Of course, AJ Watson was involved in racing from 1949 to 1984. So to Mike's point, when you are there that long, you become relatively synonymous, not just with the sport, but the cars with which you're running. But he ran cars for a number of different teams in the mid-50s. He was involved with John Zink, of course, and then later on, all the way up through into the late 60s and early 70s. He was running Eagles. He was building uh, different engines for what were known as the Watson's cars, through the 70s he was working with the march designs before he retired so i think when you talk about mike as we're going to hear in just a second here from aj watson the thing about him to me that is so impressive is in any sport no matter what sport you're a fan of oftentimes you see legends that fall victim to not keeping up with the evolution of said sport or just the changes in the way a sport is exhibited participated officiated uh, that would not be the case with A.J. Watson. He was always seemingly, if you were going into turn three, he was already in turn four because he was ahead of the curve. Definitely. And what's interesting about that is he was a person who believed in simplicity, that the more you know bells and whistles and all these things you would add to a car would mean that there's more chance of something would go wrong on the car. So you know there are so many people who love the Roadsters and so many people who say, you know, Johnny Boyd was one of those guys. Uh, I wrote Johnny Boyd one time and he sent me back a picture and he goes, Mike, this is what a real race car looks like. And it was him sitting in a, in a roadster, you know. But, you know, when you, you think about the fact that his cars, you know, with, with these beautiful cars that he made, they were pretty simple cars, really. I mean, he didn't want a lot of things on the car because he didn't want a lot of things that could go wrong with it. And for a lot of people... That's the Indianapolis race car that they would love to see. They love that Watson Roadster. Sometimes, I guess you'd say, less is more. Tell me what we're going to hear in terms of A.J. Watson talking to one of the great voices in the history of the Speedway, Tom Carnegie. What sound are we about to well, hear? I believe this is uh, well, you, I know how much you like these, uh, you know, these these deals that we do where it's uh, the press junkets, you know, right? The, the, the press junkets. Yes, exactly. I was trying to think of what word I wanted to use for that. Um, you know, these are those press audio uh, recordings that they were sent out to uh, radio stations all across the country. And this is one where Pat Flaherty, who won the race with a Watson, uh, with A.J. Watson in a Watson Roadster, they're being interviewed together by Tom Carnegie. This is Tom Carnegie reporting from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The International Speed Classic, the 500-mile race, is set for May the 30th. Thirteen new cars are in the garage areas right now, and the fans of the 500 look on these new creations with considerable interest each year. One such new car is the John Zink Special, number eight, driven by dependable Pat Flaherty and mechanic by A.J. Watson. First, let's talk to the mechanic, who has had uh, experience with uh, winning cars, Matter of fact, just a year ago, he mechanic the car driven to victory by Bob Swigert. Now, this is an entirely new car, and I imagine that what you learned last year helped you create the new one, right? Yes, uh, we got a lot of ideas off the old car, but the new car is much narrower and uh, a couple of hundred pounds lighter, and the frame stiffer, and 
really works out a lot better with the narrow tread we have, too. What's the reason for the narrow tread? And well, what's we, the difference between the front and the rear? Well, there's about six inches difference in tread, which makes it better, uh, makes the rear end stick better in the turns and handles much better. You mentioned the car is lighter. How much lighter? Well, we're approximately 200 pounds. And what is the total weight of the car without about, fuel? About 1680 dry. Now let's uh, visit with Pat Flaherty, who will drive this beautiful new creation. Pat, uh, how'd you finish in the national championship driver standings last year? Well, I ended up eighth, Tom. And what were some of your successes? Uh, the, my, my biggest race was in the 250-miler at Milwaukee last year, which I won, and then I was third in the 100-miler. And then I finished 10th here last year, which were the only big ones I... Actually, actually, you've had two 10th place finishes, right? Yes. And when was the other one? 1950. 1949 was your first year here at the Speedway. You've been going for the first prize ever since. How do you like this new car you have? Well, I'm really proud of it. I think we're going to do real good with it. How does it handle out there on the track? Beautiful so far. All I have to do is tune the driver a little bit and we'll get going. <laughs> uh, have you done, done any stock car driving recently? Well, I drove uh, about eight or ten races last year, and uh, mostly on the larger tracks, mile tracks and half miles. And what are your plans for the racing season in 1956? I'm going to drive the uh, same car that Bob Swiker drove on the dirt last year, which he helped him win the national championship, uh, which A.J. is mechanicing. And uh, we'll drive this roadster at Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Pat, let's uh, get into the speed department and talk about what you want to do on qualification speeds. Well, I believe that um, I should get up around 142 with this new car. Of course, that's uh, my opinion. And uh, we'll have to find out from there. <laughs> Are you going to shoot for the pole, the Certainly car position? Mm -hmm. You know, that means more than $2,500, and that's quite a bundle, right? And it's been a long winter. <laughs> <laughs> well, A.J., uh, I know you're proud of the new car. Things worked out for it like you expected. Yes, they've worked out very well. I think it's even better than I figured. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what's the purpose of uh, making the frame narrower? Well, it makes it much stiffer than the old Curtis chassis, and uh, so that holds the weight better and just uh, stays the same all day instead of twisting around. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, you were the winning mechanic a year ago, and I imagine the financial returns are quite beneficial to you and your family, right? Yes, it was very much, about $2,400 richer. <laughs> okay, thank you very, very much, A.J. Watson and Pat Flaherty, uh, combination in the John Zink special. Remember, fans, time trial set for the 19th and 20th and the 26th and 27th. May the 30th is the big day in Indianapolis. Be sure to see the great speed event. Or listen to it, Tom. You could always listen to it, <clears throat> as I hope you do this year, on the IMS IndyCar Radio Network. More on some of the great mechanics from the Speedway when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Tom Carnegie. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. George Sally worked for the Meyer and Drake engineering firm, which owned the Offy racing engine, before becoming a crew chief. 
for the Ballinger Special, which won the 51 Indy 500, the 51 American Automobile National Championship. And then, eventually, he did something very radical. He decided to put an offie on the side of a car. People thought he was crazy. And he said, fine, I'll enter it myself. Sam Hanks won it in 1957 with that machine. Later, a year later, as a matter of fact, Jimmy Bryant would run it as well. George Sally talked with Freddie Agabation. This is Freddie Agabation speaking to you from the garage area of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I'd like to introduce you to one of the most successful mechanics and former car owners in the 50-year history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He's George Sally, chief mechanic of car number 18, the Metal Cal Special. George, you have an outstanding and very enviable reputation in racing circles. How about telling the folks about some of the past victories in your automobiles? Well, thank you, Freddie. My first victory victory was in 1951 when I was chief mechanic with Lee Wallard. And then my second victory was in 1957 with my new car with a flat engine in it with Sam Hanks. And then I repeated in 58 with Jimmy Bryan. What would you say would be the main reason a person would invest some 30 or $40,000 in a race car or more, George? Well, the reason I became a car owner, my machine was a little radical and no one wanted to invest any money in it. So I ran the car myself and won the race. So I did so well, we owned it again the next year. In other words, the radical idea you had a decade ago, actually, it was in 51-52, as I remember. And uh, it was radical enough that you couldn't sell the idea to somebody. It was rather difficult until you proved it, and you proved it and proved it well, believe me. You sold that car to whom? The first car was sold to uh, Leonard Foss Downey. Uh -huh. And this new car that I just built was sold to Phil Coffer from Metal Cal Corporation. Well, I hope he has the same kind of luck you've had with it. All good. We hope. And by the way, uh, we've been polishing up this crystal ball we have around here, George, and uh, for this Golden Almanac series. And if you could look ahead for a decade, so to speak, what would you consider to be the biggest changes that possibly will be made in our machines? Well, large changes aren't usually made. You make small changes as the need is required, and over a period of 10 years, when you look back, you realize how big the changes were. In other words, George, necessity happens to be the mother of invention, as I can see it, right? That's true, Freddie. Well, George, uh, by, by the way, what do you think of this 150-mile-an-hour lap we're all talking about? Well, I'm In the next decade, when? I'm not going to say because there's a lot of conditions that govern that 150. You're certainly 100% right, George. Wind and weather conditions, track temperatures, chassis setups, drivers' conditions and attitudes, as well as the performance of cars qualifying prior to his going out all go to contribute to a real quick lap. Thanks a million, George Sally, chief mechanic of car number 18, the Metal Cal Special. You know, Mike, on this program, I guess Eddie Garrison, Sam Fritz, Todd Meyer, Joe Foxworthy, there's a ton of them that are kind of our Clint Brawner, our George Sally, our A.J. Watson, our George Bignotti, right? Takes a team. That, that's right. you got to have a good team behind you, and we have an outstanding team. It was a lot of fun tonight, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh, and we will do it again tomorrow night. What do you think? Do it all again? Let's do it again. I'm looking forward to it. Much appreciated. Thanks, everybody, for listening tonight. Thanks to those that we just mentioned. A reminder, tomorrow, 7 until 10 a.m., I'll be on with Kevin Bowen on the, of course, Kevin and Query on 93.5, 107.5. The fan Will Power set to join us. You folks have a great night. This has been Beyond the Bricks.